0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Coming up, Anthony Fury and I talk about all the big picture issues, media, politics, what's coming up for True North in the year ahead. Stay tuned. The Andrew Lawton Show starts Right now, welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. We're still in the midst, I think, of the holiday season more broadly, so we're taking advantage of it and taking a look at some of the bigger picture discussions that we don't often get time to do when we're chasing the uh, horse race story of the day, the breaking news, whatever else is happening. And this episode, I've actually been trying to put together for a couple of months now, and just for whatever reason, we haven't been able to do it and a big part of it was because uh, when this guy joined the true north team we were in the midst of the public order emergency commission and obviously that was dominating our coverage but uh, anthony fury who i don't even think i can say new now but for the last few months has been true north's vp of editorial and content is with me anthony an absolute pleasure to have you back on thanks for coming on today
0: yeah, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here with you on the show. And it's great to be here at True North. It's, it's been a great couple of months.
1: Yeah, it has. And I mean, obviously, you bring a, a wealth of experience. You and I go way back. We've had each other on each other's shows. I, I've written columns that uh, you've been kind enough to publish when you were with the Toronto Sun. And I think it's actually really great that you're at True North now for a number of reasons. But I, I was wondering if you could just first explain... I know you've talked about it a little bit in the past why you took the plunge to new media to independent media.
0: Yeah, look, it was a great privilege to be at uh, post media for well 12 years and I think that's a long time, you know, you hear all these reports that say people aren't in jobs for life anymore. Young people jump around three or four uh different jobs within a decade or what. Have you and I thought, "Oh man, you know, I, I want to go out and, and and do a little bit of that. I hope I can still count as a young person." So it really was about exploring uh, different opportunities out there. And look, I think True North's growth is is really impressive. I mean, I've been friends with Candice Meltham for, for many years before she created True North, and I was always impressed with how uh, every year I'd uh, be speaking with Candice or or other people at True North, and just the growth is so impressive in terms of growing the audience and the reach, and it's exciting to be something uh, that has that energy behind it, for sure. And it's no surprise that uh, the media industry in general is is moving away from more traditional uh, models, whether it's printing physical newspapers or whether it's creating a broadcast news package exclusively uh, to to go to air on a TV station or or on a radio station. I mean, increasingly we're all sort of YouTube content creators. We, we find that uh, major television stations after they record the broadcast have to repackage it so it can go on Instagram or go on Facebook or for some other uh, video video model up to YouTube and uh, newspaper companies are doing that as well. So things are are really converging to the point where, where, where the core product is actually the same.
1: I, I can't imagine I'm the first person to bring this up, but in some ways, I think COVID was really the great equalizer because you had all of these media companies with their big, fancy, expensive studios, and they were forced to figure out, uh, you know, how to get guests in by Zoom, and they were doing everything remotely, and they were doing a lot of what independent media outlets and certainly what I've been doing on this show for, for quite a while, and I think the audience sort of had adapted to that already.
0: Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. I mean, in past years, when I would be asked to appear on CTV or CBC, of course, you say, and please show up at this studio, and you spend uh, time with the technicians, and you spend time in getting some basic makeup on to go on television, and it's, a, it's an elaborate professional production, and, and that's fine, and they would not have allowed anything else. I guess if you'd said, no, I don't want to leave my house, I want to do it via Zoom. Uh, they would prefer be in studio model, which which is fine, of course. You get that you get that studio look, and now it's almost the opposite. But that still doesn't even really happen all that much, even though COVID is behind us. When you look at the broadcasts and the panel discussions on uh, places like CBC, it looks uh, just like you and I talking right now. They're they're in their homes or they're they're broadcasting from their phone or what have you, and I, I think that's fine. But to your point, all of those all of those assets that they have, the physical assets, uh, they're just kind of utilizing them less. So things have been democratized.
1: This was, I think, for a lot of reasons, a big year for independent media. Obviously, the Freedom Convoy, I know I keep harping on it. I know I've got a book about it. I know True North has a fantastic new book about it as well. But it was a really important moment, not just in Canadian politics and, dare I say, Canadian history, but I think in, in terms of exposing the problems with some of the legacy media outlets in this country, and I think that was just the number one thing that we heard from people throughout those few months at the beginning of this year, that they just didn't trust CBC to tell the story. They just didn't trust the Toronto Star to tell the story. And I, I think that as far as the convoy is concerned, True North did a, a tremendous job with that and continuing along with all of these different stories that have come up, like the Public Order Emergency Commission where do we go from here? I mean, it's not every year you're going to get that gift as far as news value is concerned.
0: No, but to your point, what was the underlying tension or challenge with the storytelling and the narrative that happened this past years with the convoy, with the inquiry? I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that there were so many news outlets that wanted to play gatekeeper, that wanted to say, okay, we've got these these people on social media. We've got the great unwashed who are trying to set the narrative one way, and we're going to tell them how they're wrong. But part of the challenge with that is the the great unwashed was on the ground seeing these things happen in real time. And you've got traditional media trying to uh, either misdirect, misinform, or just focus on things that weren't really uh, the true narrative there. But because there was so much live streaming and so much uh, firsthand experience going on, people said, this is not accurate. And I think one of the big crises we've seen and why we see all these surveys put on by uh, by international organizations about declining trust in, in, in traditional institutions, whatever they may be, and media lumped in there as well. Back in in the 60s and the 70s, you would have that one person on the nightly news broadcast, you know, Knowlton Nash in Canada, obviously a little bit, bit later on, it's Lloyd Robertson and Peter Mansbridge. There's a general sense that most people felt they could trust those people to tell them what is happening. And at a certain point, that trust really started to decline when people thought, can I actually rely on these sort of nightly newscast figures to tell me unvarnished what's going on or are they filtering it with a narrative? And I feel like people want to, want to really hold on now to their ability as gatekeepers. But one of the things that, uh, that both social media in general and then uh, just this whole sort of uh, variety of, of other news options has shown is that the narrative that they're actually safeguarding isn't necessarily true. And that's a big problem if you're saying things that aren't accurate or things that are obviously uh, pushing an agenda that's going to see people ghost away from you And, and the numbers show that that's happening.
1: When you talk about that institutional trust, the one thing that bothers me whenever this comes up is that the legacy media types will often bring out a lot. They'll just go right into navel-gazing on this and and talk about why that decline in trust is everyone else's fault. You know, Donald Trump, I think, was probably blamed for more of the distrust in media than there was any self-blame. And obviously, you know, when institutional trust across the board is being harmed, there isn't just one factor. But I don't think there's been, and you may have a different perspective, on this, a lot of recognition by the mainstream media as far as its role in that declining trust.
0: Yeah, not enough. I mean, some of them are honest and they talk about it. Obviously, the whole fact that Hillary Clinton had like a 107% chance of becoming president <laughs> and it didn't come to pass. And they did have some honest postmortem saying, are we actually serving our country well? Are we ignoring middle America? But soon after they they had that conversation, they also had something called the Trump bump, where the Washington Post, New York Times, they did really well with bringing on new subscribers, which you go, oh, really, that was happening because we heard subscribers were tanking in recent years. And they did get a lot because they they really sort of obsessively covered the Trump White House and, and really kind of grilled him on absolutely everything that he did rigorously. And I, I don't have a problem with that per se, because I think it's important to, to absolutely grill our politicians, whatever their background. Now, obviously, they're not doing that with the Biden White House. There's a lot of, oh, let's not talk about this. Let's not go there. So they've lost that energy. That energy only applied to Trump. And the subscriptions are going down again. That Trump bump is gone. And they're kind of uh, trying to deal with what all of that means for their revenues. And, and that's this interesting situation they find themselves in right now.
1: Yeah, I must say, I think my absolute favorite was the CNN Chiron of Donald Trump gets two scoops of ice cream when everyone else around the table gets one scoop of ice cream. And it's like that's that was basically CNN saying we've got nothing else to cover right now, but we know that Trump is good for ratings.
0: And I saw Biden actually had two scoops the other day when he was having lunch with Emmanuel Macron. So we got a problem here.
1: But did, did Macron get two or did he get one? That is the imbalance is the real issue there.
0: I think he had a croissant.
1: Okay, oh that's even more. Yeah, of course he did. Uh the 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 interesting thing in the Canadian context is that we have our own. Now I think there are a lot more muted than they are in the U.S. But we have our own sort of blank derangement syndrome phenomena that happen in the media. And right now, Polyev derangement syndrome is the flavor of the day. He had that one uh, infamous press conference when David Aiken just decided to like use up two of the five questions he was going to take asking why he wasn't taking more than five questions. And I, I think that these sorts of things are probably going to happen a little bit more. And I I guess my question is, do you think Canada could withstand a Ron DeSantis-type politician that actually actively tries to flip the script on the media? Or do you think that our political culture is just a little bit too cautious for that?
0: Well, it all depends. I think increasingly people are aware of, to our point about crafting narratives by certain mainstream voices, that the power that they harness is smaller and smaller when your audience is both decreasing and the people who are getting news from a plurality of sources uh, through a variety of sources is really kind of increasing up there. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing that happen where there are people who just don't at all access their news from, from traditional outlets at all. Uh, that original idea of Donald Trump basically doing end run around the media. So yeah, I, I, certainly think it's possible. I mean, I, I will note, I think you're right to say things are much more tepid here. I look back to what was happening during COVID and you had Doug Ford, who we were told was like a Trump like figure and he's like a, a right wing politician. And there was a time, of of course, just this past January, it's hard to believe this was this calendar year, where he was bragging about a fourth hard lockdown. And he he was actually making fun of Ron DeSantos at one press conference and making fun of Florida. Uh, so supposedly, Canada's leading right-wing politician. Meanwhile, just across the border in Michigan and New York, you had Democratic politicians who weren't having it. You had the Democratic mayor um, of Boston, uh, a, a black lady who had said that. Uh, Kim Haney was her name, to say that she doesn't believe in vaccine passports because her people had already endured slavery. That was controversial, and she sort of half apologized for that remark. But that's a remark that if a, if a conservative politician had said it in Canada during COVID, they would be out of a job. They would be gone. They wouldn't even consider saying it. But you had Democratic politicians who are pushing back so much more. We were told that Maxime Bernier was some sort of extremist in his views on COVID. But when you looked at mainstream Republicans like Rand Paul, who is an MD, a medical doctor, he was always saying things much more aggressively than Maxine Bernier was. So it's it's interesting, and I would say lamentable, that that the confines in Canada are still extremely narrow.
1: Yeah, and, and it's tough, because I, I think that there are some aspects of the American political system that I, I would not want to adopt. For example, I think that the, the two-party system, while it has its benefits, I think generally speaking, it, it takes away... A lot of voter choice. Now, the the practical side of that is that it, it really hinders uh, the chance of a conservative success in Canada in a way that it doesn't in the United States. But I think your point is incredibly well taken, which is that we in Canada have an Overton window that is in a much different place than it is for the United States as far as what the the bounds of acceptable discourse are here.
0: Yeah. No. Certainly. I mean, one of the things, just from a simple analytic point, that I always found really interesting about Trump twenty sixteen was he created the ballot box questions, the referendum questions, out of thin air. Drain the swamp, build the wall. I mean, that was not a thing. I think there were obviously people in states like Texas who were passionate about uh, border security and getting more of a wall built, but these were not national referendum questions. Yeah,
1: if you're in Ohio, like, why do you care about a wall between Mexico and Arizona?
0: No, exactly. And yet Trump made those the questions that everybody in america had a strong opinion on and people passionately fought for them and he really just it, it was like magic conjuring of them all and i, I do think there's an opportunity I, I mean the question of are you a leader or are you a follower whether or not you're a left-wing figure right wing figure i would say both both barack obama and donald trump are leaders and then you, you find people like both Mitt romney and joe biden are not leaders for instance in terms of whether or not they can sort of bring these issues to the fore take the bull by the horns almost single-handedly great feats of individual strength and do that And i think canada can make that happen. I think Pierre Polyev, during his leadership race, he really, he didn't create things out of thin air, but he saw things that were bubbling on the surface and articulated that stuff that people were feeling in terms of one of his big refrains about, I'm going to put you back in control of your life, almost in a nonpartisan way, um, Andrew, because I think there's a lot of, I think it applies to so many issues. It's not just one policy issue, this idea that Too many different government bodies or even just gatekeeper elite type people, maybe not government figures, but in other industries are just trying to tell us how we should live, what choices we should make more. So I think a lot of people are feeling that right now, even if they're not card-carrying conservatives, Pierre really picked up on that. I don't know if that's still going to be the case whenever this election is and whenever Jugmeat pulls the strings on the coalition in 2055 or what have you. But, you know, for now, that's how it is.
1: Okay, since you bring up Jugmeet Singh, not that I find him to be usually the most uh, useful uh, kind of person to talk about in Canadian politics, but I I do just find this running gag that I and some others are doing on Twitter to be quite amusing, which is anytime he tweets about how unconscionable something the Liberals have done is to point out like the fact that this is the guy who has given the Liberals a blank check and really not gotten anything in return here. And it baffles me to some extent to some extent it doesn't but it baffles me to some extent that more people don't see through that
0: no for sure and i think what's really going on is that the ndp just doesn't have the money to fight an election the ndp knows that they can't win an election the, the ndp has moved back to where it was under leaders like alexa mcdonough where they are just happy to be the third party or the fourth party they call themselves the moral conscious of parliament basically <laughs> when there's legislation that isn't considering the issues they care about. They're going to get a couple amendments in committee and a couple tweaks, and then they're going to score victory for that. Jack Layton used to basically own a number of bills that passed and said, I actually made this bill what it is. And there's, I think some case to that being true in some legislation. But then also Jack Layton realized, I, I'm actually sick of all of this being this like always third wheel, let's be winners. And then he he got that going to his credit. Uh, Tom Mulcair picked up on it. And now the NDP I think for a number of reasons, is to say, nah, we don't want to be winners anymore. Let's just be perpetual losers. So Jugmead's just kind of treading water. He wants that job. Let's be honest, if you leave being federal liberal leader, conservative leader, there are a lot of interesting job opportunities, corporate positions. That doesn't exist when you're an NDPer. Rachel Notley has just gone back to being opposition leader because there's no other... Like, you know, she's a person who has to pay bills. I'm sure she has a mortgage. Andrew Horvath, why was she Ontario NDP leader for so long? What else is she going to do? And now she's mayor of Hamilton because, again, she has to pay her bills. Uh, the, the opportunities for them are, are just that much more narrow.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and Tom Elkair, I know, is on CTV every now and then, but I actually have no idea what he does with his life.
0: He goes on CTV.
1: <laughs> hey, you know what? It's a living, and I, I don't begrudge anyone doing whatever works for them. But yeah, you you are right on that. And and I think it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't support most of what the NDP stands for, but I, I just putting on my strategist hat here, I, I wonder why they gave away so much for so little. Because if I were Meat, saying I would have held out for one of these big ticket items, like they still even their dental plan that they supposedly exacted from the liberals, even though Justin Trudeau had already promised it, isn't the dental plan that that the NDP really wants, which is basically to extend Medicare to dental care. They uh, didn't do anything to get universal pharmacare, which was another longtime Liberal plan. And again, I, I don't support these policies, but it's like the worst negotiator in history has to have been Jagmeet Singh.
0: No, certainly. What did he get out of it? And we have to play this Kabuki theater. It's a it's a co- coalition by any other name. Don't call it a coalition. Obviously,
1: he didn't a- even get a cabinet seat out of it. Like a token, like throw you in there for something. Nothing.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, it's just not working. And I know Jagmeet Singh says, "And we we can withdraw any time." But as you've pointed out, Andrew, well, okay, if you think Canada is like currently complicit in ongoing genocide or whatever these like really over the top remarks he's making, I mean, if you if you're if you're just in it for the memoirs, okay, well, that tells us what you're all about here. You just want to tweet for the sake of the RTs if you're genuine about all of this, well, well, then you're gonna have to do something about it. And you either do something by getting on the phone to the prime minister and saying, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna collapse this thing unless I get X, Y, Z. And to your point, Andrew, with the details of the dental plan, he's not actually doing that. He's not striking a hard bargain. So, so what do you do? I mean, there's, if he wants to play that game of being the moral conscious of parliament, and I'm just gonna like tweet my indignation once a week. Well, fine. I guess that's what he's doing. He's doing, he's doing that job. But if they're serious about, about affecting policy change and and, and playing their role in, in in parliament. And yeah, he's certainly got out of his game.
1: Let's turn a little bit here to the year ahead, 2023. Do you think this is going to be an election year federally?
0: I don't. I think Justin Trudeau wants to run out the clock. It's very interesting that, that with the interest rate hikes, we're told by some of the major banks that people have hit their trigger points. Now there's a certain period where when you have a variable rate mortgage, um, When the rates go up, your actual raw payment is not going up. It's just that the amount of interest and principal skews against you. And you almost get to the point where you're paying 100% interest, but your payment still hasn't gone up. So your daily living is not affected. The trigger rate means, sorry, we're actually going to have to push this rate up and you're going to be paying more a month. And you could be paying 200, 500, over $1,000 more a month, depending on when you took out your mortgage. There was years like 2019 when Vancouver, Toronto, just crazy bidding wars. And I think a lot of people were over leveraged and some people, I hope it's not a lot, I don't like saying this, but some people will lose their homes and they're not going to be happy about it. And I think a lot of this is going to be in swing ridings as well. So, so why would you, if you're Justin Trudeau, want to roll the dice on all of that? Why would you want to go to the polls when, when suddenly almost, you know, four weeks after you've started the election, uh, the economy gets really problematic and there's a good argument to be made that you have partial blame for it.
1: Yeah, and you you had people that were talking about the possibility of a fall election, which I never thought was really likely, like one in in 2022. But I thought that the only justification for it would have been... If Justin Trudeau was seeing that, you know, we're heading into a recession, we're heading into really bad economic terrain, let me see if I can just like squeak out a win before things get really bad. Because at a certain point, there's going to have to be accountability, and even the most Teflon scandal-proof government will have to pay the piper. I mean, voters will not injure a government forever and i i think there's still that prevailing question of whether voters turf justin trudeau or liberal mps turf justin trudeau and i i go back and forth on that what do you think
0: i go back to what happened before justin trudeau became prime minister when he abolished the liberal senate and back then that was held up as this brilliant thing to create independent senators or something no what he was doing it was a really kind of maoist thing because all of the liberal senators back in 2014 would have been appointed by Paul Martin, Jean Chrétien, or even a few uh, before then. And these are kind of old guard liberals who I think we've really seen from former cabinet ministers from that era. They're not happy with the direction of this weird, woke, no. leftist liberal party. He needed to get rid of those voices. So when we talk about backroom machinations, and look, I'm not this, I, I don't like playing the Ottawa bubble game. So I get a lot of my backroom calculus wrong because I'm just not <laughs> interested keeping score and all of that. But I think the idea of elder statesmen in the Liberal Party uh, coming in to to make things happen doesn't really exist with the federal liberals in the same way it necessarily does with other parties. So this idea that someone's going to force them out and and there's factions, that's not to the same degree it was during like the Kretsch and Martin fighting years. Trudeau has really, really isolated himself, which has some benefits for him. And I think some negatives for all of this. You know, there's this talking point for years that that Jerry Butts is the puppet master and he's running things. And, and he's been out for actually a couple of years. And Andrew, I've got some very bad news for you, actually. Justin Trudeau is in charge. He is running things.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I've obviously covered and and I'm going to be covering in a couple of weeks the the World Economic Forum, and you always get every now and then the person that thinks that Klaus Schwab is pulling the strings on Justin Trudeau, and I say, no, 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 it's worse than that. Justin Trudeau likes to do this sort of stuff. Justin Trudeau likes these policies. You don't need to tell him to do them.
0: No, it's a good point. I mean, with the World Economic Forum stuff, I I think the big problem with it is it's a bunch of like-minded people who are getting together in a room, and they hear these kind of... Rather elitist ideas disconnected from regular folks, and they're more connected to each other, to the global elite cocktail circuit, than they are to the regular folks on the ground. Which is why they get uh, really interested in these bizarre, uh, newfangled ideas uh, that that they're doing. there. The idea that you know, to your point, it's not like Klaus Schwab has his, has his compromising intel on all these figures. They're willfully doing it, and that's uh, I, I think that's a lot more problematic, actually.
1: So let's get out of the Ottawa bubble and the uh, Ottawa Palace intrigue then, uh, Anthony. I think we all benefit from being out of that space as much as we can be. What are the big things you're looking out for this year? What do you think are the big stories or the big themes?
0: Oh, well, economic issues. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen. Tiff Macklem a year ago said there's not going to be any inflation. There's going to be no need for interest rate hikes. That's his core job. You know that meme, Andrew? You had one job. The meme is like, Tiff Macklin, your one job is to pay attention to <laughs> interest rates and he has failed on all that. He doesn't know what's going to happen. So if he doesn't know, uh, nobody knows. And and look, this is a very real thing in terms of inflation in people's lives. Folks who were only just scraping by six months ago, I, I don't know what it means to say what what, what happens six months later because they, they can't just scrape by anymore with the food bank usage rates are rising. And this is this is very real stuff. I do also wonder to what degree we are going to see a pushback on all the woke stuff. Uh, in the United Kingdom, they had a lot of concerns with the transgender issues that they'd gone too far. Um, you know, you could be like deleted from Twitter for merely saying you support JK Rowling or what have you. And now it's totally gone the opposite. They've realized they are, they're in problems. Uh, they've temporarily shut down that Tavistock clinic, which was doing gender reassignment surgeries. I think we're just behind them. So something's going to come to a head on that issue. On a related issue when it comes to kids and woke stuff, Here at True North, we've been doing so much coverage on school board issues because people are really concerned about what's going on in public schools and the agendas that are being pushed, the politicization that's happening. And we saw in in elections in Vancouver and throughout Ontario, um, anti-woke school board slate trustees, and they did not win for the most part. But I think that's just the beginning. I think it was basically like a beachhead moment, and that'll only continue next year.
1: Well, and I think it was actually a very important battle for people to get in on because I find oftentimes conservatives in particular tend to ignore local government, and I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because they think it's beneath them, or because you know a lot of people on the right tend to be more policy minded, and the bigger policies that mostly come across our radar are provincial and federal. But local government is very important. School boards very important. And this has really been the first election I can recall where there's really been an orchestrated effort by the right, and I use that in the, the broadest sense here, to really get involved there.
0: No, it's a very good point. And I can think of a number of examples where I see a, a left-wing individual running for trustee, and I go, this person, they don't have kids, they're not previously issue- uh, interested in these related issues. What's going on? It's pretty obvious what's going on. They're a trustee for one term, and then, oh, they're the city councillor or the MPP next term. So they really see it as a feeder system in the way conservatives typically don't. Kathleen Wynne began her career as a trustee and then became education minister and of course became premier. And, and I'd credit her. She was a parent and she was involved in the school system. So I think she was much more, uh, it made much more sense for her to run for trustee rather than some of these other individuals. But, but yeah, the, 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 left-leaning people, they see it as a pipeline and, and you're right. Conservatives don't as much, but looks like they are now.
1: So. Let's talk a little bit about where True North goes from here. And I, I know we've touched on it a little bit. Obviously, uh, we've got a team that just keeps growing and growing. Like, I, I can't remember if I've said it on the show before, but I remember when I joined True North in 2018, we didn't really have a team call because we our team was, you know, four people. So we would just, you know, message each other uh, once a week about what we're working on. And then the, the, the calls kept getting longer and longer and longer uh, because we kept having more and more people and more and more stuff that we're doing, which is a, a very good problem to have. And I mean, at this point, people ask me, how many do you have? And I'm like, I don't even know how many people work for us anymore, which again, is a very good problem to to have. But what is it you'd like to see? What's the big challenge, Mr. Vice President that you'd like to see us tackle?
0: Well, to, to really simply answer the first question, where's True North going in 2023? Onward, upward, bigger, better. <laughs> and it's really exciting, because that's certainly happening. And, and you know, Andrew, you've got a lot of fans up there for, for a good reason. I mean, you're just doing amazing stuff. You've been really killing it with, with so much of what you're doing and, and being on the ground, uh, to cover things like the convoy, where whether people support them or oppose them, it's still important to just get the basic facts, right. And and that's what you did. And that's what true North's been doing. So moving forward, I, I think the team will be growing. Um, you know, as you know, I've been aware of 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 the metrics of most media companies in Canada in terms of the web traffic they get, the audience they command. And to your point of, you know, why did I want to be involved in True North? One of the reasons is, wow, you got a good thing going on here in, in terms of a growing audience, what those numbers are. And and the space True North fills in the Canadian media landscape, a, a big space and an increasingly growing one. So we're going to see people doing more things. Um, uh, the shows are, are just... Gaining in popularity, which is great, and we're going to be doing more news gathering, uh, more exclusive information. To our point about the school board issue, there are many issues that uh, traditional media companies just aren't interested in exploring as much. They're not putting the work into it. Uh, Black Blacklock's reporter, I think one of the reasons that they've had some success is because they cover House of Commons committees and Senate committees. And you go, well, doesn't everybody cover them? They actually don't anymore. It used to be, and certainly
1: not the reports and documents.
0: No, absolutely. And it used to be the the case that um, all the all the the wire agencies and the major outlets would have a person sitting in a committee and watching the whole thing. And that just doesn't happen anymore. I think one reason, because they've ceded the floor to these issues and they're not reporting on the nuts and bolts of what matters to Canadians. And another issue is business metrics. They just don't have the people uh, to do it anymore. So True North, is, is going to be really telling the full story in, in a way that a lot of media outlets just aren't doing anymore. School board reporting was a traditional thing throughout the 80s and 90s. It's not happening anymore. So we're going to be bringing Canadians, both getting the scoops, the exclusives, the voices they need to hear, but also getting them the basic news that's, that it is out there, but a lot of media just aren't telling people about it anymore either for agenda crafting reasons or for lack of resource reasons
1: all right onward and upward i look forward to it very glad to have you on the team anthony fury vp of editorial and content for true north Uh, thanks so much anthony always a pleasure sir thank you sir that does it for me we will be back with more of canada's most irreverent talk show soon enough this is the andrew lawton show here on true north thank you god bless and good day to you all
0: thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show